0: Good morning. morning. Welcome to our Sunday School class. We are working our way towards exegeting the book of Philemon. And by book, maybe it's more appropriately called a letter uh, or even a paragraph than it is a whole book. But nonetheless, we will eventually get our ways, uh, find our way into that letter. But until then, we are taking a look at literary structures in scripture. There are literary structures and literary devices peppered all over the Bible. And I talked last week about how once you see something, once you learn it, For the first time, or maybe I can use a car example, when you buy your car and now you start seeing it everywhere, oh, everybody has my car now. When you see certain, when you come to understand certain doctrines in scripture, it's like, wow, God's sovereignty has been there this whole time and I just didn't see it. It's not dissimilar from literary devices and literary structure in scripture. Once we have a grasp of what how the authors are structuring what they're doing it's like you start seeing it all over the pages of scripture. It is at a point for me personally where maybe when I first heard about this stuff I was a bit skeptical but as I learn more and more about these structures I'm not only completely convinced that it's there, but completely convinced that the authors are very intentional about putting it there. Because we do have to remember that the book that we're studying is the word of God. It's God's word. Can he put all of these parallel, crazy, cool structures in there without the author knowing it? Oh yeah, he can. But at the same time, These authors were very talented in the literary styles of their day. Think about a talented writer who you might read today. If you read a certain novel from a very gifted writer, you would expect a certain level of uh, talent into what they do. There's a standard you would expect them to meet. If it was sloppy writing, you would be able to tell probably if it's sloppy writing in a novel. Well, biblical writing is not sloppy, It is intentional, it is purposeful, there's designs to it, and they are following some of the common structures of their day. I go into this long introduction because we looked at chiastic structure over the last two weeks. Well, chiastic structure is not the only literary structure that there is. By the way, if you don't know what I'm talking about yet, I do have notes at the back there. Uh, I would encourage you to take it. We did two weeks on chiastic structure. But there's another literary structure, and this is one where probably most of us will be hearing about this for the first time. And it is called Covenantal Structure. Covenantal Structure. What is Covenantal Structure? Well, it is another literary pattern. A pattern by which covenants are made in the Bible. You think of the different covenants. The Abrahamic, the uh, He made a covenant with Isaac. He made a covenant with Noah, with David. All these different covenants that are being made. It turns out that when covenants are made in scripture, there's a certain pattern that these elements are always there. And we're going to look at a couple of them. So it is a basic pattern by which covenants are made in the Bible. Now, I'll point out that These covenants will have certain elements in them, but they don't always follow one through five in that order. Sometimes it can be rearranged a little bit. So where do we find covenantal structure? Of course, in biblical texts, in the making of covenants. We are going to look at a couple of them in a moment. But it is not only when we are talking about covenants directly. We also see this structure in the ordering of other texts which match this sequence. So, you're going to see it in the Davidic covenant. When the Lord comes to David and makes his covenant, there's going to be these elements of the covenantal structure that's there, but we're also going to start seeing it in the way an entire book is written in the Bible. It's going to have these elements in big chunks. It's even in individual smaller sections too. What is the pattern? There are a few possible patterns. John Frame is a, a brilliant theologian, philosopher. Uh, he works at Westminster, California. Brilliant man, godly reformed man. He sees mostly a threefold covenantal structure, although he's not exclusive on that. Uh, So there are other possible structures, but the most common and the most explicit is a five-fold covenantal structure. And I bring up that there's a couple different patterns because a three-fold structure would represent the Trinity. A uh, four-point structure would represent the four corners of the earth, as the Bible says, north, south, east, west. A five-point structure represents the steps of house building, if you go into it. Seven-fold structure would represent the the week of creation and the Sabbath day. A ten-fold structure would represent the Ten Commandments. A twelve-fold structure would represent the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles. So there's different types of structures that you can find that find its reflection in other important elements of doctrine, or the way the Bible's laid out. But the most common and explicit is this five-fold covenantal structure, which goes as follows. It is right in front of you, but I'm going to write it down for reasons you'll see in a bit. So the number one is sovereignty. Number two, mediation. Number three, stipulation number 4 sanctions and number 5 succession sovereignty also could be called introduction it could be called transcendence it could be called initiation this is the part in the covenant where god introduces himself i am the lord your god i am el shaddai behold i am the lord this We always see that when when the Lord comes before people, we see, I am the Lord. That is your introduction. And then it moves to mediation, the second step, which can also be called historical prologue. It can be called hierarchy, order. This is the part in the sequence where... God moves to the backdrop of what he's about to get to. I am the Lord, the one who brought you out of Egypt, the one who led your forefathers, the one who took you out of Ur, the one who did all these things for you. He gets into the mediation. This is how I worked for you through past events. That's important because it shows the authority of the person who is about to be making the covenant through past action. Then it moves to part three, which is stipulation. Stipulation is usually the longest part of a covenant. This is describing the conditions. Uh, Other helpful terms, this is is the ethics, the laws, the boundaries, the plan. Uh, This is the whole what I'm going to do now. So I am the Lord who brought you out of slavery in Egypt, and now I tell you, you are going to inherit the land that flows with milk and honey. You are going to be blessed, and I am going to do all these things through you. So this is the plan. This is what God's now going to do. Stipulations, usually the largest section. It deals with the content of the covenant. Number four, sanctions. This is the binding of a covenant other helpful terms to describe this this is your blessing and your cursing your rewards your punishment I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt behold I will bring you into the land and I will bless you however if you turn away from me I will add the curses of this book upon you but if you obey me you will be blessed you will be secure you will be you see the development of each of the of each of these parts so sanctions Also is an important part because that is where your witnesses come in. You are ratifying the covenant that you're making. You need witnesses. The scriptures are clear. Two or three witnesses are required. And so you need witnesses at this part. um, Because you are basically saying in public, curse me if I don't uphold my side. Uh, Another way to think about... Oh yeah, so it's the ratifying, sealing, witnessing of the covenant. Succession is number five, and this is important. It's the continuing of the covenant. Other words to describe this is continuity and procession. I am the Lord, the one who brought you out of Egypt. Behold, I'm bringing you to a new land where you will be highly blessed. If you turn away from me, you will be cursed. If you obey me, you will be blessed. And this promise is not just for you, but for future generations, your children and your children after them. This is a pattern. Is it already ringing in the back of your head when you read covenants through scripture? That it usually goes in that type of pattern. Although there will be a lot of other words in the middle of that. This ensures the covenant's lasting value. Most often as it relates to children and the next generation. Let's find some examples. If you could turn to Genesis chapter 15. Uh, I won't be going through all of these examples. Probably three of them. In Genesis 15, the Lord is going to show up to Abram. 15.1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. I want to point out now, right in the beginning of this particular covenant, and it's not just this one, God gives promise before he's going to start bringing in law, stipulation, he, he gives promise first. That's an important point. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your own very son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now we're going to start paying attention to our structure. Although we're already seeing some of the elements in what's been said. And he said to him, I am the Lord. Introduction. That's your introduction to the sovereign. Covenants are made between sovereigns. People, God, and image bearers of God. It's not between a person and a cat, a person and a tree. You make covenants between sovereigns. And I don't mean sovereign as though we're sovereign like God is sovereign. I just mean as individual entities. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. You're actually already seeing three parts just in that one sentence. I am the Lord. that's introduction, who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans, there's your mediation, to give you this land to possess. Stipulation, you're already at three. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. This is all because we're going to move to sanctions in a bit. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. I'd love to talk about that, but not for our purposes today. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. That's supposed to take you back to Adam, by the way, in the garden before Eve was made. I need to stay on my text. Um... (laughs) Uh, Where am I? 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. We're moving into sanctions. And afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Blessing, cursing. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Okay, these are representing the presence of God. He's representing his presence in the pot and in the torch. I've already mentioned, why is it important? Abram's asleep. Why is it important that there needs to be a torch and a pot? Any ideas? Why why can't God just say, all right, the covenant's made, it's ratified. Why does he have to do this? Signs. quite. For us to learn from, to see how he symbolizes his presence. Yeah, we can be helped by that. There's one primary reason. Because a covenant needs witnesses. A covenant needs to be ratified by witnesses. Abram's asleep. Smoking pot, flaming torch, two witnesses who are representing the presence of God into this covenant that is being made. That's important for sanctions. He's already talked about blessing and cursing that's going to happen, and now he's ratifying it with the witnesses that he is providing happens to be himself. By the way, there's three. Never mind. When the sun went down and it was uh, on 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring now we're clearly into succession. To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites and the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Good thing I have read those names out multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't have time, but it, you can see a, a similar structure in Deuter or in Genesis 17. Please turn to Deuteronomy 29. We're going to see it again. Deuteronomy is a very important book for all of this. Of- yes. How- In the pot, witnesses. Like when you say witnesses, I think of like people, you know, like actual someone who can verify something and Mm -hmm. understand how a fire and a pot can verify that. There's signs of witnesses, but really what's going on there is God is swearing by Himself. Uh, the whole point of the cut carcasses and all of that and the, the, the God's presence going through it is essentially what happens to these beasts, to these carved animals, that happens to me if I don't hold my side of the covenant. God is holding himself to be split in half. And, and this is hard for us to understand, but he, like, basically this happens to me if I don't fulfill my covenant. So he's representing witnesses with the pot and the... And the torch. Because he can't bring somebody higher than himself to witness this thing. So he witnesses through himself, through these symbols that we can read. Does he have to do this uh, for the sake of the law that he is making with the people? Yes, because he will tell them, you need two, two or three witnesses for a lot of different things. But especially in a covenant, he couldn't bring anybody else to swear by in this covenant but himself. And so they are representations of his presence, really, um, And yeah, there's possible Trinity references there too. And so then it's not, then you have the Holy Spirit involved and the Father. You have your two witnesses right there. Deuteronomy 29. The Covenant Renewed in Moab is what it is titled as. Notice how often, by the way, the covenant is going to be renewed. So often. Like the covenant's already been made, but we're just going to have it renewed every so often. We're going to keep on renewing this thing. Verse 1, these are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. Already we have introduction, sovereignty. The Lord did for you, the other party in the covenant, what he did in Egypt to Pharaoh and to his servants of all the land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, those great wonders. See, before he gets to the content of the covenant, he's showing that God's been mediating for them this whole time. How, what's the backdrop to all of this? For but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not worn off your feet. You've not eaten bread and you've not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sihon, the king of Heshab and Og, the king of Bashan came out to, against us to battle. But we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the Half Tribe, the Manasites. Therefore keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. Are you seeing some of these seeing some of these titles getting into there the, the structure of a covenant? You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord, the heads of your tribes, the elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones. That's where you're talking about succession again. Your wives, the sojourner who's in your camp, the one who chops your wood, the one who draws your water, that you may enter the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God's making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you. We're in stipulation here. And as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, it's not with you alone that I'm making this sworn covenant. This isn't, pay attention to this. It is not with you alone that I'm making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God and with whoever is not here with us today. Who's that talking about? Succession. That's right, Carolyn. The ones who are not with us here today are the children and the grandchildren. This covenant's for them too. You know how he lived in the land of Egypt, how he came through in the midst of the nations, which you passed, you've seen the detestable things. Uh, I'm going to go down to 20. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, that is, people who turn away. But rather, the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. There's your sanctions blessing, curses, rewards, punishment. And the Lord will single him out. Uh, I got to move on. But basically, you can see all the different elements of a covenantal structure, just as we saw it in Genesis. We're seeing it in Deuteronomy 2 when they renew it. They follow the same structure. The last one I'll show you is Joshua chapter 8. It's not too far from where we just were. What's this one titled? The eye. No, uh, sorry, verse 30. 8, verse 30. Joshua renews the covenant. We're going to renew it again. We just renewed it like 10 chapters ago in Deuteronomy. We're going to renew it again. We're going to see all we're going to see the points here too. Joshua 8:30 At that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord the God of Israel on Mount Ebal just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded the people of Israel as it is written in the book of the law of Moses an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. So we already have he's building it to the Lord's sovereignty. We're already getting it there. As he commanded the people in the book of the law of Moses We're already, and in the book of the law of Moses, we see how God mediated, but we'll get to that in a second. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. This is an example where the element of sanction is there, but it's before some of the other steps. It doesn't always follow exactly that five point order. Sometimes sanctions will come before, but either way, the The sacrifices falls under sanctions because the sacrifices are saying, I'm committed to this covenant. I'm going to do my side. My part of the grant is what I'm going to fulfill. God's going to fulfill his side. As long as you are doing the sacrifices in the Old Testament, you are putting those sanctions on yourself. It is just as when the Lord went through the, the pieces of meat, I burn, I sacrifice this animal to signify if I don't do what I've said, I am the one who's being burnt and being killed on the altar. That's essentially what you're doing when you make those sanctions. And that has New Testament continuity with when we do the sacraments today. Why do you think it says in the Lord's Supper, when some of them take the elements improperly, some of you are weak, ill, and died? There's a reason for that. It goes back to the point of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. That was there to say, if, I don't, if I'm sacrificing this animal and I'm not obeying the Lord, I'm the one who should be burnt. I'm the one who should be cut like the animal. When I take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner that I am not truly a believer, the Lord's condemnation come upon me. Let me drink bitter wine, wine that destroys my stomach, the bread of condemnation. See, there's a lot of parallels. Nothing's by accident in scripture. Nothing. So they offered the offerings. 32, and there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written, and all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half at the front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. There's that sanctions part again. And afterward, he read all the words of the law. So reading all the words of the law is your stipulation. When you're reading all the words of the law, you're saying, this is what the Lord requires. This is your side of the covenant. God is going to be faithful on his side. This is your side, the reading of the law. The blessing and the curse, sanctions, according to all that is written. And there was not a word that he did not read before the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones in the sojourners' succession. All five parts right there. And that was the renewal. You see it again in 24. We're not going to go into it. But if you just look at the headline of 24, it's probably no surprise. Joshua 24, the headline, the covenant renewal at Shechem. They're going to renew it again. <laughs> 2 Samuel 7, that's the example of David. You can read that on your own and find the structure on your own. It's there too. So we can see it in personal covenants, this same structure being being adhered to. You have all of these elements in in the making of a covenant. But I was already alluding to the fact that this also is a structure that we find in letters and books as a whole. The Book of Deuteronomy. Uh, do you guys have study Bibles by any chance, where it gives you a little like before the Book of Deuteronomy, you get to see the outline, the structure, why it was written, who, it was, stuff like that. If you look at your little outline of Deuteronomy in your study Bible, I recognize if you don't have a study Bible, you're at a disadvantage here. But if you just look at that, like my ESV here has a nice section called Outline. I know you probably can't really see it, but it just splits up the book, the main themes that are in the book. And if you go there about the book of Deuteronomy, it's going to start with the first section in the first chapter is Outline. Or, or Sorry, it's called Prologue. There's your sovereignty. It introduces God. And then the next four chapters is called Moses' first speech, Historical Prologue. Mediation, historical prologue. The first four chapters after that introduction is all about mediation. And then in sections three and four, I have Moses' second speech, general covenant stipulations. Moses' second speech, specific covenant stipulations. This book, and that takes up, like I said, that's usually the biggest section. That takes up 22 chapters in Deuteronomy. So we have four verses on this, four chapters on this, 22 chapters on this. And then the next section after, Moses' third speech, blessings and curses. What do you know? And that's when you move to your sanctions, and that's two chapters. And then Moses' third speech and uh, final exhortation and succession of leadership. I don't even know if these guys were intentionally using the exact words of covenantal structure, but all five are right there. The entire book of Deuteronomy is written in covenant structure. Multiple verses and chapters on each one of these things, and it's in order. The whole book is on that structure. And it's not just Deuteronomy, but we're talking about Philemon. That small letter of 25 verses is written in covenantal structure. I'm going to show it to you when we exegete that passage. We're still not really that close to getting there, but we will get there. Philemon is written in covenantal structure. All right, so it's there. It's also in groupings of books. This is another really cool part. How come the Pentateuch is arranged the way that it is? Well, for one, it's tracking history in a certain way, but not all the books deal with that much history. Leviticus, for instance, has very little history or narrative. It's just the giving of the law. It's just straight stipulation. If you look at what the Pentateuch, the way that it is arranged, what is Genesis all about? Genesis is about introducing us to God, the sovereign, He shows up to Abram. I'm the Lord. Shows up to Noah. Great job, Noah. You're going to be saved. Shows up to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph. He just introduces himself. This is how we know God. Sovereignty is what we see as the main theme of Genesis. What happens in Exodus? The main theme of Exodus is God's mediating presence to get them out of Egypt. To establish his people as his own. Exodus is a book of transitions. He's going to bring them out of where they are. He's going to do all of this work. That's where we see him as our great mediator. Leviticus. I already mentioned this. What is Leviticus all about? The giving of the law, it is explanation of the law. The fullest expression of the law is right there in Leviticus. Very little narrative because that is your stipulation. Numbers. Numbers is about counting the people of Israel. He begins with a census. He's going to look, what are the armies of Israel? And that's when God says, start moving in. Start moving into the land. They have their first set of conquests into the land. After Exodus, they don't really move much in Leviticus. But starting in Numbers, they start moving in and bringing God's blessing and cursing. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Well, now it is. Go in there and be my instrument of judgment. Numbers is all about God starting to bring his sanctions. Also, there are stories of Israel itself. Failing in their sanctions. This is when we start seeing them fail more as a covenant people. And then finally, Deuteronomy. What's Deuteronomy all about? Moses is preparing the new generation to enter the promised land. There's going to be a succession of leadership to Joshua. He's giving his final speeches to them. God's saying, you're, you're about to die. Uh, Joshua's going to go ahead. Pass it on to Joshua The book of Deuteronomy is all about succession. The way the Pentateuch is arranged is in covenantal structure. It's not just the Pentateuch, though. Have you ever thought about why the Gospels and Acts are arranged the way that they are? For example, Luke writes Luke, and he writes Acts. They even go right after each other. Why are they not beside each other? There's a reason for it. There's actually two reasons. One, we have the synoptic gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, or uh, yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and it's believed that they all had access to each other's writings and, um, and all of that. And then John is kind of dealing with something else, so we'd set it up like that, and then we have to throw acts on after. It's it disjoints, but you know, that's the way that we did it. But the other reason, I believe, is because it follows covenantal structure as well. And I don't have time to get fully into it, but if you look at the the points of those five books of the New Testament, the way that it starts, what is Matthew, for instance, all about? Matthew is presenting us Christ the King. This is where we have that talk about what is truth, where he shows that he is a king. He's bringing his kingdom in. It is the sovereignty. I would love to show it, but I've got to move on. It's all about showing Christ as King, the Sovereign. Mark. Mark is all about Jesus was doing this. Then immediately he's going to do this. And now he's going to go help this person. Now he's going to cast out this demon. And now he's going to feed these people. Constantly, His mediating presence and work amongst the people. He doesn't have time to expand on all of this stuff. He's just going, going, going. It shows him as the servant of God, submitting to his will. It's mediation is what he's primarily doing in the book of Mark. Stipulation. The gospel of Luke. This is where we get the biggest exposition of Christ as a man. We see him so much as... The son of man in Luke. That he is going because he is the man who fulfills the law. Luke is so focused on the humanity of Jesus because he's the one who could fulfill every stipulation of the law. He's more focused on that than anybody else is. We see him as the perfect man in Luke. And what do we see in John? The exact other side of the coin. John is concerned with showing Christ as the divine. This divine judge. The giver of eternal life. Like John 3. That's where we get that. The one who holds eternal life and gives it. The one who gives out blessing and curses. He is the divine judge. That's the big point of the book of, or the gospel of, John. The sanction of God. The the divine judge who is going to give everything out at the end of the day. And then finally... Probably the most obvious one is Acts. What is Acts all about? The next generation. The first apostles going out. The first disciples going out spreading the church all around the Mediterranean and the empire. That's all about succession. And then establishing churches, establishing elders. It's all about the succession of the church. Is this blowing your mind or are you bored out of your mind? (laughs) It's one of the two. (laughs) I love this stuff anyway. So we see this covenant structure even in the groupings of books. If you look at the, you don't have to turn there, but the book of Psalms is also split up as five books. I'd have to do more research into if that follows the, the outline. It might, but that one didn't seem to fit as clearly the first time I looked at it. There's also a parallel structure of the covenantal structure in the 10 commandments. I'm going to have to do this relatively quickly. And then next week we'll just carry on with where we left off in our notes. But if you take the 10 commandments, they are actually organized in a parallel structure. The first commandment The first commandment is about how God and God alone is to be worshipped. That's commandment number one. He introduces himself as a sovereign. God the Lord is alone to be affirmed as transcendent. It It affirms the integrity of God, the holiness of God. Men are to be holy as God is holy. This means we are to have integrity in ourselves and integrity for other human beings. So God introduces his integrity in number one and tells us, what law does he tell us to respect the integrity of life in other people? Commandment number six. Thou shalt not murder. One and six follow this part of the structure. Respect the sovereignty of others. Second commandment. Is all about how the Lord alone is to be worshipped in this specific way. We call this the regulative principle of worship. We don't worship God by our own devices. Whatever we decide to make up. God wants to be worshipped the way he has said that he wants to be worshipped. So it's in God's way, in context, that referred to um, the Exodus people constructing the tabernacle and eventually the temple. That was the context then. No other environment would be permitted. He wanted the tabernacle, then he wanted the temple. Stop offering strange fire is one of the lessons we learn from that. The second commandment requires a liturgical affirmation of God's sovereignty. Liturgical, what we do in church, how we worship God. The way that we structure our church service is one about affirming that God is worshipped the way he wants to be worshipped. We're not bringing funky stuff in. We're supposed to worship how he wants to. A liturgical affirmation. We'll talk about liturgy uh, probably next week. And so that's all about affirming God's transcendence in all of life. It prohibits covenantal idolatry. We are not to go to other gods and worship them or even worship God the way he doesn't want to be worshipped. It's protecting that relationship between him and us. And what commandment is there that protects relationships and the integrity of a relationship? Commandment number seven. Shall not commit adultery. The most important of all human relationships. The first human covenantal relationship established in the Bible in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve. So what we see is commandment number two. And plus there's a huge biblical connection between idolatry and adultery. To be... to be idolatrous, God often says, is it compares you to like a prostitute. You are committing adultery against the Lord, essentially. So that is what we get. Um, that's what we get there. What's the number two word again? Mediation. Mediation. Thank you, thank you. Mediating the relationship between the between those people. The third commandment: God's name is to be worn with power, not in vanity. Um, ultimately, the kingdom that God gave to Israel, this is, an import, this is important to hear, the land that God gave to Israel was the land of Canaan, but ultimately what, it was, what he was doing was incorporating people into his body, which is the church. They didn't call it the church, but it was the gathering of the people. So in the New Testament, we're not gathering around Jewish synagogues and temples, but all people are being incorporated into his body out of his people, taking it into his name, Christ-ian. We take ourselves into the name of Christ. We get clothed in his name. We're to obey his laws then. To not wear God's name in vanity is equivalent to not trying to maintain the grant of the kingdom. If you're going to be loose with God's name, you're going to be loose with how you interact with him, with how you represent him. You are essentially turning on your side of the grant of the covenant. I'm wearing this name with vanity. and In the good sense of vanity, not the bad sense of vanity. But I am going to wear his name in power, not... Um, Not in a bad way. And so God says he will not hold a man guiltless who wears his name emptily. Uh, That's one of the threats that's right there in the law. He will not hold you guiltless if you take his name in vain. And so we cannot be judicially guiltless before God if we cannot honor and respect his name. That's really getting to the grant of The covenant that is being made. We're going to fulfill our side and wear you in a good way. Full obedience is necessary to maintain the grant of the kingdom. Which we can't do. That's why we need Christ. But that was the major theme in Leviticus. That's a big theme in Luke. And that connects pretty well with number eight. And commandment number eight is thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not steal is respecting the grants that God has given to others. He has given them certain property. He has granted them certain things. As you are to maintain the grant of having God's name, you are to respect the property that he has granted to others. You're not to take from them. And so we see a connection there. And then speeding up a little bit, Number four is about Sabbath keeping, the Sabbath of the day of the Lord. It's the time of the implementation of sanctions. I already mentioned before the connection between sacrificing and our sacraments that we do today. On the Lord's day, we are essentially coming before God and inviting him to evaluate us. I brought up before, notice how many times it says covenant renewal. The covenant was renewed. The covenant was renewed. In a symbolic sense, every time we gather on Lord's Day, we are renewing the covenant that we make with God. We're renewing it. I'm going to explain that I won't have time to explain it today, but every part of our liturgy is set up actually in this style as well, and most Reformed churches do. Where we follow this covenant, the structure of the covenant where we are basically inviting God's sanctions upon us the blessing and the curses we get blessed when we take the lord's supper in a right way we get cursed if we take it in a wrong way we are blessed when we see baptisms and when we're personally baptized and it is a curse upon a people to not be doing baptism when we come we are essentially telling god i'm done laboring of my work my work for this week now come and judge my works for this week lord come I bring myself to you judge what you see I'm renewing the covenant with you it's our day to go to God for evaluation and that was what was highlighted in the book of numbers again before coming to be evaluated for judgment in a symbolic and spiritual sense that's what we do on lord's day come evaluate me bring your blessing And we're also blessed through the means of grace as a whole, word and sacrament. Hearing the word is an objective blessing. I said I was going to speed up and I didn't. My apologies. And then the ninth commandment is forbidding false witness. So we said before a big theme about the sanctions part is having witnesses for what you do. When we come on the Lord's day, you're not a church if you're just by yourself. That's not a church gathering. A church gathering requires the body, requires witnesses. And just as when in the ninth commandment, you are not to spread false witness. Witnessing is a big part of the sanctions part of a covenant. And so that's the connection there. Not to be a false witness. And then finally, and we'll close with this. Commandment number five. God has turned over his kingdom to subordinate stewards, mothers, fathers, pastors, deacons, elders. God turns his kingdom over to subordinate stewards that they are to be respected. That, of course, was highlighted in Deuteronomy, in the book of Acts, all about moving it on, stewardship of the next, the next people. And so the fifth commandment turns all of that over. Similarly, in the tenth commandment, when we are forbidden to covet When you start desiring what God has given to others, uh, their wife, their land, their animals, their whatever that God has given them, you are breaking the continuity part. God's given them land and there's a lot of inheritance laws there. Like that is for the blessing of their family and their next generation, the children who come after them, all the things that they have. You start coveting what other people have. You're essentially coming after the blessing for those people's children one day. We don't like to think about it like that all the time. But coveting leads to a whole lot of sin that brings the destruction of the inheritance of others. We call it the two tables of the law. This is table number one, and then this is table number two. Turns out there might be a little more interaction there than we initially give it credit for. Well, I have about 30 seconds for any closing comment or question, and then we got to go. Um, If we think we see a covenantal structure in place out of order, does it still work? Yeah, I think it does work. Um, That's what we saw in the Joshua one Mm. when they started bringing some sacrifices. He mentioned the sacrifices earlier in the passage. He could have just as easily mentioned the sacrifices later, Mm. but the sacrifices was corresponding with sanctions. Slightly out of order, but you're still getting all the elements of the structure. Usually it does follow, though, one by one. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your scriptures. Thank you for your word that you have left them for us to learn of you and to obey you. Let us now obey you with joyful hearts in this worship service. Amen.